Hi, everybody. This is Wrapped in Podcast. Uh, I'm not sure what number it is uh, because we're out of order at this point. <laughs> With us tonight, recording from Peachtree City, Georgia, is my friend and colleague, T. Kyle King. How are you doing, Kyle? Uh, I am not a human being. I am a podcaster. How's, uh, how's that restrictive zoning going for you in Peachtree City? Uh, going very well, actually. <laughs> good. You know, ma- maintaining green space and all that good stuff. How, how many golf uh, carts do you own? Uh, I only own one, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm about to have a 15-year-old in my household. So, you know, that may go up at some point. Well, better a golf cart than a car. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. Is it is it like one of those fancy, like, air-conditioned, souped-up golf carts? Like, what's... Oh, no, it's... Yeah, no, it's it's just garden variety, uh, you know, battery powered golf cart, and uh, it's it, it's helpful to you know just sort of get around uh, within the city itself. So it's it's good stuff, environmentally friendly, and all that. But by way of explanation, Kyle lives in Peachtree City, which is a a planned community where many of the residents uh, zip around on golf carts because there are paths for them all over town. Um, <clears throat> a slightly different city, San Francisco is a place from which Ken Walzak is recording and joining us tonight. How are you doing, Ken? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm actually not in San Francisco at the moment. I am in uh, Whitechapel in Victorian London, and uh, I've settled in to a lovely little pub called the Ten Bells. Uh, I understand nothing ever goes wrong here, and I am in no danger whatsoever, so I think this will go great. Uh, that sounds good. Um, so, yeah, so the movie we're going to talk about this week is this movie that combine. you know, it's sort of where high society... Uh, meets the world of carnival, uh, spectacular, and freaks. Uh, and, you know, I didn't see it. I have no desire to see this movie, but uh, we're going to talk about The Greatest Showman. Um, <laughs> I, I I have no desire to see this movie. I did watch the part of the Academy Awards, and I saw that song. It was terrible. It was like the worst song I'd ever heard. I don't. I, don't I, I was. I, understand I was lucky during winter break. My wife took our daughter to go see The Greatest Showman, and that got me out of going to see it because everything I understand about it is it's Moulin Rouge without getting to see Nicole Kidman in lingerie. Is it Baz Luhrmann? Did Baz Luhrmann make this movie? I don't know, but everything else about it seems seems like the same movie. It seems very Baz Luhrmanny, and it's like very praising, very lionizing, hagiographizing a person who had a, a, a sort of net negative impact on society. I'm, I'm out. I'm out on Greatest <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you. Which, which one is it? Was it? Is it Barnum? Is it Bailey? Is it one of the Ringling Brothers? I don't, <laughs> it I don't know. should have been an elephant. They're, they're like, there are four of them. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know the, what the distinction is, but God, that song was bad. Um, anyway, we're going to talk about the elephant man. Just kidding. Uh, this is a movie that involves, I'll give you sort of a, all of our listeners a, a plot summary. Uh, essentially, Dr. Hannibal Lecter is, has assumed the care of the war doctor who appears to have suffered some sort of weird Dalek related injury from the Battle of Gallifrey. <clears throat> and he was previously a business partner with, uh, uh, Thurfer Hawat, a, a Mentat. But Dr. Lecter has problem with, with a hospital where he's taking care of the war doctor because his boss, uh, is the supreme being. Uh, who doesn't want to have the war doctor in his hospital. Then, you know, we run into Sonny Jim, uh, familiar to the, certainly the listeners of this podcast, who now is trying to sell tickets to see Merrick and is, you know, it, it really has taken a bad turn. Sonny Jim used to be a good guy. What happened? Right. 
Uh, eventually, Mrs. Robinson comes to visit John and gives her an autographed picture. Uh, th- somehow, we end up in Europe. R2-D2 is working at a carnival. Um, Thurfer has, has basically stolen the war doctor, puts him in a cage with the monkey from Firewalk with me. Uh, R2-D2 helps the war doctor escape uh, and get, lets him go to England or gets him on a boat to go to England, wishes him luck. And uh, yeah, you know, that's he comes back to, to England and, and that finally the war doctor goes into his next transformation. So that that's the movie. What'd you guys think? Wait, how much of that was Dune references? I understood almost none of that. Um, oh, oh, wow. So let me get so right. So, oh, yeah. So, no, well, it's, I, it's, I, yeah. So Doctor Hannah, Hannah, Dune, Silence of so, the Lambs. Yeah, there's a. Yeah. So, so, so Hannibal Lecter is Anthony Hopkins. Uh, right. Got uh, that one. Got that. Yeah. The War Doctor is John Hurt. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, and, and, and basically one special episode of Doctor Hurt, John Hurt appears as this weird stopgap doctor that we didn't know existed before. Uh, Therefore, Hawat uh, is the same actor who plays Bites. Is that his name? Yeah, he plays Bites. Bites. Yeah, Bites. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's Bites. Uh, the Supreme yeah. Bean is, 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 of course, Sir John Gilgood from Time Bandits, uh, in which he played the Supreme right. Bean. Uh, yes. An excellent, excellent um, Terry Gillen film that everybody should see. R2-D2 is, of course, um, what's his name? The little person. I, I can't remember. D2 is played Kenny. by a robot. Yeah, he's from a, Kenny, Kenny something. Yeah. It's a robot. Daniels. It's played by a no, robot. No, that's is it. Daniels. I, that, that's that's C three PO. That's C three PO. Hold on, we, we gotta. We're, we're gonna have to go for assistance on that because it would be awful not to identify him. That's great. I I'm yeah, very we, glad that of the eight people who were thinking about listening to this podcast, we have now narrowed the audience. No, it, down it, is, to it, it is. It's Ken, so, it's, it yes, is. Kenny, it's Kenny very Baker. Well. It's Kenny Baker. Uh, but I oh, think well. Baker. Okay. In that case, the other yes, one's that's Anthony right, Daniels, right? right? Okay. So right. Kenny Baker right. is in is in the Elephant Man. Is the that's thing right. that you were saying? Yeah, he's he's okay. Yeah, yeah he's he's, a, he's the like cage. the lead yeah, well. little person uh, in the unidentified continental um, carnival. Where where was that carnival? I was it I Italy. I, it seemed like they were speaking Italian. It's it's meant to be in it's meant to be in France, um, and it's meant to be in France because that's where Merrick ended up in his second sort of stint. So I mean, the thing follows his biography as it was understood by Treves and some other people pretty closely. Um, there have been some more recent uh, writings about Merrick's life uh, that refute a lot of these details, but as people understood the story in 1980, basically, um, so the film tracks the, it. Were there, so, did those new de- um, details include the fact that his name was actually Joseph, not John? <laughs> yeah. No, right. that's that's right. That's the major new detail where they were like, I don't understand why um Treves insisted on calling him John all the time. But it's like it says like um or sorry, yeah, John. It says John on his tombstone, I think, is is how common that error was. Um but he was definitely christened Joseph. Um so yeah, so that's one of the details that the more recent writings have corrected. Um and there's also a misconception one of the places where the film takes artistic license is how much Merrick had to do with his own freak show career. So having failed to um, make it in a workhouse and wanting to make some money for himself and have some degree of independence, he sort of proposed the idea of exhibiting himself. So, you know, we'll talk about layers of complicity and stuff through the course of, uh, of, of this podcast, I'm sure. But that is one thing where the film takes liberties. The idea that Bites is, is basically sort of enslaving this guy. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure that his uh, time on the road was hard and that the exhibitor stuff was awful. Um, but it, he did enter into it w- in an agreement with some other people because he thought it was sort of his only option 
So, so, uh, so the term business partner that he uses in the film is is actually more true than the film suggests then. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it's really savage when Bites uses it in the film, and it's a yeah. really, really cutting sort of moment. But yeah, it wouldn't right. surprise me if that came out of the Treves book or, or one of the books that was more contem- one of the accounts that was more contemporary, because that was sort of the arrangement that he tried to set up. But anyway, I'm sure things were quite bad in France, but in real life, he went to France uh, because the, uh, that was where there was still an appetite for displays of freaks and things, whereas the appetites had really turned in England. Um, authorities were more often shutting these shows down as, as against public morality. And you can sort of see the tide turning in France in the movie, but um, but yeah, it's meant to be there. Yeah, I just thought they were speaking Italian, but I apparently am not that good at identifying romance languages. You, you need to watch more more of the uh, Despicable Me and Minions movies, because they speak a lot of I Italian. Don't, the Minions I really do. don't. That, don't want to do you that. You don't need to, but that, that fake language, that fake Minion language is mostly Italian. I didn't know that. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, no, I mean, it actually it is a combination of several languages, but there actually are points where they're just, I mean, more or less straight up speaking Italian. I took my kids to Universal Studios at the end of last year, and they made me go on the Despicable Me ride like six times. And I, I don't, I can't, I don't wish it on anybody. And I've not seen any of those movies, nor do I intend to. So yeah, this movie was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Editor, Original Score, Art Direction, Costume Design, and Actor, which is crazy. This is David Lynch's first film. He essentially made Eraserhead when he was in film school, and uh, this was the second movie he made. Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't win any of those awards, but it was a pretty tough field that year with, with Raging Bull and... Uh, ordinary people. I, I don't know that the latter is necessarily deserved all those. Uh, but anyway, it, it, it was a and coal miner's daughter. Oh, coal miner's daughter. Don't forget, too, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, the story of how it happened is kind of weird. The the Jonathan Sanger is this you know producer who got this screenplay from his babysitter's boyfriend who had read it, and you know he he ended up really liking it, and you know I can't remember if he ran into Mel Brooks before or after they David Lynch got involved. But I think David, I think first talked to Jonathan Sanger about it at a big boy, or I think there were two different versions of the story from what I read. Sanger said, big boy. It's gotta be a big boy. Yeah, no, but gotta L- be. Lynch said it was yeah, something it else. So it, was, it wasn't a big boy, but big boy makes more sense. Mel Brooks, you know, fell in love with the story uh, and, and became involved in producing it, but he, probably wisely kept his name off of the production because uh, they didn't want people to associate it with a comedy, uh, which which makes about sense. But he also, they made he watched Eraserhead. Uh, they made him watch Eraserhead to decide whether or not they were going to have David Lynch make the movie. And he, he watched it. And I guess David Lynch was outside the theater at the studio where he watched it. And he came out and he said he loved it. Uh, he he certainly had some really nice things to say about uh, David Lynch. He, one of the things I saw him say in a documentary about the show, he said about David Lynch, I felt like I was dealing with a true artist with David Lynch. I felt that he was as close to understanding the phenomenon of life and why we're here and why we have to die as any artist I ever met. And he said he was simple. He was profoundly gifted and he was intelligent. And those are all sentiments I would certainly agree with. And 
you know, really, what a fantastic movie this was. I was ashamed that I had never seen it until I watched it for this podcast. It, I was aware of it, and I think when I was a kid, I was aware of it, but I was a- afraid of it on some level because I was five when it came out, and so I didn't really have an opportunity to watch it. Uh, but, you know, it, it was a spectacular movie. I I was really, really glad to have watched it. What, what were you, you guys, what were your sort of big picture responses to watching it, I guess, for the second time for both of you, at, at least the second time? Yeah, I think it was the third time for me, uh, but it's been many years, and I certainly found that I reacted quite differently to it as an adult. Um, just one little Oscar addendum in case we don't get to it later. It didn't win any of those Oscars, but there was no Hair and Makeup Academy Award in 1980, and people were so astonished by the Elephant Man makeup in the film that there was a Hair and Makeup Award starting the following year. So it was basically the proximate cause for the creation of this award, which of course it couldn't win because it didn't exist at the time. So uh, it had an impact on, uh, on the Academy Awards for sure. But no, I I liked it quite a lot this time. I found it very moving. I don't know that I was able to appreciate the cinematography and Lynch's directing quite as much on previous viewings. And finally having access to like a high-def copy on a decent-size widescreen television really, really helped me appreciate the artistry in it. And being a little bit older and knowing what to expect, too. Because I think originally, the first time or two, I just kept thinking like, well, this is more linear. This is less Lynch. This is less weird. And of course, Lynch's stamp is all over it, and it's a truly stunning film, but I just think that I, I had to be in the right mode and have the right um, backdrop of understanding to to appreciate that. Yeah, and I, I kind of I echo Ken's thoughts on that. I mean, I would have seen this in, since it came out in 1980, I would have seen it in 1981 when it came on HBO. I would have watched it uh, you know, one evening when I was 12 with my parents. And of course, looking back on it now, the thought of, of 12-year-old me watching a David Lynch movie with my parents just is, you know, the kind of thing that, that sends chills up your spine and, and, you know, keeps you awake at three o'clock in the morning. But um, yeah, it, it, at the time, of course, I, I knew nothing. It would have been uh, the first uh, David Lynch movie I ever saw and would not have been in any way conscious of of who David Lynch was or or what that meant. Uh, and so I think going back and watching it now, I saw a lot more of Lynch in it. Um, but yeah, I remember at the time it, it, it was, I mean, it was a very affecting film, you know, it, even even as a kid, um, you know, had had an impact. I mean, you can't help but feel compassion uh for this this person in this situation uh even though probably some of the nuances uh that i got this time escaped me the first time yeah i think that's right i think you can appreciate it or i appreciated it on multiple levels uh just in terms of what a fine film in general it is uh but then also watching it steeped as i am now in most lynch stuff uh, you can tell within five right, seconds yeah. it is a absolutely distinctive David Lynch film, even though it's got a linear structure in terms of the plot. Uh, even though there aren't like weird mysteries inside mysteries, it, it also lacks comedy, which is kind of unique among David Lynch's stuff. Uh, it is absolutely David Lynch's stuff. But as to the second part or the first part of it just being a moving film. I mean, it absolutely was one of the, another quote that I picked up was John Hurt. I saw him being interviewed and he said, if you are, if you are someone who could get to the end of the elephant man without being moved, I don't think you'd want, I, 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 I I'm going to cut out my attempt to, I, I, I got it. And then I lost it. 
I got it. The and voice I, was I got, good. It was got, really good. I got the yeah, timbre was. right. I didn't it get was. the accent right. That was the problem. Um, <laughs> I know. Was I, such I, a valiant tried, effort. But anyway, he it said, was. if you're someone who could get to the end of the Elephant Man without being moved, I don't think you are someone I'd want to know. Which, yeah, I, I would, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah, you know, and the the. It was really an amazing decision by Lynch and the cinematographer to decide to do this in stock, black and white, uh, not just shoot it in regular color and then, you know, do a, a black and white print, but to do it in, in actual black and white yeah. film is, is, is fantastic. It, it's gorgeous. And one of the reasons they did it is they thought that Merrick would be just too viscerally upsetting to see in color whereas in black and white it becomes a little bit abstracted and kind of fascinating as opposed to you know being too real or too intense in color i think that was a good choice yeah i mean it plays into a couple of themes that i'm sure we're going to talk about including this notion that his appearance is so upsetting that people can't even deal with it and whether it's him looking into a mirror or other people seeing him on the streets and i i think it's a very outdated notion certainly of how we think about disability and things of that nature um but it is it is definitely something that plays through the film and it allows the filmmakers to make decisions about how to comment on the voyeurism inherent in film itself, right? So uh, I, I think that there's all kinds of risks of shooting this in color, from the failures, or such as there might have been, of the makeup being more evident, to things looking a little more um, you know, out of place or corny or not aging as well. And I think that we're used to thinking of the past as appearing in black and white, such that if you're going to do Victorian London, you might as well shoot it in black and white and take all the advantages that gives you thematically and, and everything else. Um, but Brave, still, I'm sure there were not a lot of blockbusters, right? A lot of money, movies making money in 1980 that were shot in black no, and white. No, absolutely not. And and, and uh, I'll let, I'm sorry before I'll let you go, Kyle, Kyle, but apparently a lot of, of audience members thought that the movie had been filmed 20 or 40 years before it was made. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah, and I, I can believe that. And I'm just trying to think. I mean, you would have had, you know, a few Woody Allen films from from a few years earlier, and then Raging Bull around that same time would have been in same, black and white. Same year. I can't really same offhand. Year. For Raging Bull, same year. Yeah. Same year, yeah. 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 Yeah, so I, I can't think of anything else from that from that period of time where there was the deliberate choice. You know, we when we when we first got to color around you know circa Gone with the Wind, you know, it was such a huge deal to do Technicolor, and so they they made a huge deal out of filming everything in the most vibrant color you could, and it was it was years after that before uh, anyone made the choice to say, all right, I can shoot this in color, but I'm going to go with black and white, and I, I don't know that we even at that point would have fully arrived at the point where that was. A mainstream artistic choice. There's a little movie called Doctor Strangelove that comes to mind, which well, yeah, yeah, generally it's an artistic choice, yeah, uh, and 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 a distinctive one and a a good one here. And just generally, I mean, could you imagine Paramount making a movie like this today? Uh, It it just we can't conceive of a major studio making a movie like this. Well, let alone putting it in the hands of someone as new and inexperienced as Lynch. I mean, right. we've come back around on that a little bit. We're getting to the point where we'll put like franchise tent poles in the hands of somebody like Denny Villeneuve or something. But still, usually they have to have made a movie that was seen by more people than a racer head, right? Right. <laughs> Before they get those kinds of gigs. Um, can I ask a question? Uh, which Have you two seen Freaks, the Todd Browning movie from the 30s? No. And while I was watching this, I was thinking, 
damn it, I should have watched Freaks. I hope that Ken saw it, so at least he can talk about it. I, I literally yeah, had, had those thoughts it. as I was watching the movie, because I know it's an important movie. I yeah, just haven't seen it. It's great. I, I, I think it's it's uh, fairly essential. It's super short. It's like 70 minutes long or something. So so you can um, just sort of pop it in. But it's it's real disturbing. And it makes a lot of the same kinds of points that this make this movie makes in sort of miniature. I, I think the scenes in the carnival circuit are very evocative of freaks and very intentionally so. Um, the stuff in France in particular and the like, uh, stuff where they band together uh, to sort of save him, book him passage back to England is very like goobble gobble, one of us. Like there's there's definitely stuff where you can tell that Lynch has seen I have no doubt that Lynch has seen that movie a bunch of times. You know, I, I maybe I did see that, I, I, but it, it may have been during a period of time in college where I don't necessarily remember everything that happened. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I think totally I, I, I did see it, but I definitely need to watch it again. Well, then, and in addition to the visuals that obviously are very distinctive, the thing for me in watching it this time that, that immediately made me aware that I was watching a David Lynch movie was the sound, the, the impact of the music. Because yeah. you start out with these very basic uh, black and white, you know, white on black opening credits. You got close ups on the old photograph. You got this kind of circus style music, and and it comes across as fairly conventional, all things considered. And then the music shifts, and then instantly you're you're inside a David Lynch film before you've even seen anything that that even tells you that. And then from there, you've got you know industrial noises over the shots of the elephants, and it's got this sort of dune like oddness to it. And, and it, you know, the, I mean, it's an elephant. You know, we don't, we think of it as, as a fairly benign creature, rightly or wrongly. And this actually made them appear really bizarre and menacing in a way I don't think people think about elephants being most of the time. I thought of a white horse. Did, did yeah, you guys? I, sure. I did. I did. <laughs> no, I think, I think that's fair. I, I thought of Eraserhead a lot with the way the sound escape is constructed early and the industrial noises are amazing. I wrote an industrial cacophony number one very early right. on because it seems like you know the all of that stuff, all the ways of depicting London seem kind of uh, vile and the Industrial Revolution does play as like a villainous character slash backdrop to all of this for Lynch, which I think is a is a smart choice. The the elephant stuff is well done without being showy and is real creepy. Yeah, and, and especially so and I wanna ask you about this, Ken, because I think you did more research into the actual story of John or Joseph Merrick than I did. In the movie it's explained that he his de- deformities are were apparently caused by an attack on his mother by an elephant. That can't possibly be true, right? It's well, it's certainly not why he was deformed, and science doesn't know yet exactly what he had. Although the most recent theory is that he had a co- rare combination of genetic disorders, which is really like a terrible double whammy. Uh, but yeah, he thought that was true. So the the doctrine was called maternal impression and people actually thought that pregnancies could be affected by things that happened outside the womb to the mother 
during pregnancy and that they would leave some impression on her mind, which would be then, you know, sort of imprinted on the fetus in some physical way. And so this notion that his mother was disturbed by an elephant and that is why he turned out that way uh, is a story that he apparently repeated throughout his life. And she was apparently um, startled by a fairground elephant, not not an elephant on some isolated island in Africa or whatever they say in the movie, but, but a fairground elephant supposedly startled her or knocked her over. She had some kind of genetic abnormality as well, um, which may have played into that. I mean, she may have been sort of um, unsteady as a result, is a thing that I read. But um, but whatever, either way, people thought that uh, what happened was an elephant startled her, and therefore she gave birth to uh, Joseph Merrick, which is crazy to imagine now. My fear rewatching the scene now was that oh man they're trying to evoke rape somehow that that this woman is somehow being um impregnated by elephants which i i fully realize is impossible but i didn't i didn't know how bad the sort of science of the day was and it's almost as ludicrous to imagine that what they thought was going on at the time was that an elephant startling somebody could cause these kinds of well in the movie the only person who says that is bites and certainly you know none none of right. the None of the doctors right. or biologists or whoever the physicians see, even indicate that they believe that's the case. I think was it Treves? Treves? How do you Tre- Treves, yeah, Doctor Treves. Treves? Yeah, he said it was a congenital disorder, which wouldn't suggest it was a birth in, or you know some sort of injury in the womb. I mean, it's just an absurd concept medically, and I think it would have been for them at the time, uh, despite what you know lay people might think about the this uh, maternal impression theory. Yeah, I'm sure that Treves had enough knowledge to think that that to, to disregard that and to think that he was going to um, get closer to the bottom of what was going on. But it's definitely a thing that Merrick believed and yeah. repeated. Well, and 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 back to this opening scene with the elephants and then with his mother screaming, uh, but slowed down in a way that we've also seen happen in plenty of other David Lynch films, which is so truly uncanny and upsetting to hear. Uh, that that sound that sound and that screaming you know brought me straight to uh, Bob attacking his victims at various points. Maddie in the train car. You hear the same kind of slowed down screaming uh, that, that that we heard in that particular part. I guess I, I, perhaps related to your your concerns about it being uh, some sort of rape allegory. Yeah. Although I, I don't think that's what it was. No, I, I don't either. I just I was really a- afraid that it was headed that direction, right? And um, the, the maternal impression stuff is almost as ridiculous as I say, but uh, but makes a little more sense. Um, yeah, it's I, I had the the sort of Bob association with it. Um, I, I think that the the sound is is just uh, terrifying and and really well done. There's also, of course, just before the elephant flashback or dream, or however you want to look at it, a slow pan down this portrait of his mother, which is very significant. And man, if that didn't give me Laura Palmer thoughts right yeah, away. Sure. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Kyle, I think you had a comment about the actors in the movie. Yeah. I, I mean, we've been talking about some of the things that uh, uh, were common to David Lynch's later work and that, that are familiar to us. But on the flip side, it did take some getting used to uh, seeing what what we now think of as established mainstream actors like Anthony Hopkins and John Hurd and John Gielgud and Anne Bancroft in a David Lynch film. I mean, there are a few bit players who are people we think of as Lynch's people. Um, but, uh, you know, we're used to seeing uh, the the sort of folks that are 
primarily, you know, guys like uh, Everett McGill that that I don't know that I've ever seen in anything David Lynch didn't make, you mm-hmm. know, and and just you know those kinds of actors that that appear in his work and they're just not there. And I, I think up to a certain point, and I'm not really sure uh, how far up it goes, but I, I would think it goes up at least to Firewalk with Me. Um, Jack Nance. Uh, it, this is the the only movie in the first segment of David Lynch's career that Jack Nance does not appear in. And it's just sort of interesting seeing these other actors uh, in Lynch's work, particularly this early on. I mean, it'd be one thing if he did this movie today and all these actors said, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to work with David Lynch. Um, but to be willing to make this movie with this unproven, untested director in 1980 is really pretty remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and I sh- this is the perfect time to mention, he wanted Jack Nance. He wanted Jack Nance to play Merrick, uh, which is the most amazing thing in the world to me, that John Hurt is like your backup plan. <laughs> Hurt is his, right. his second choice after his buddy Jack Nance, who just, you know, uh, had a star turn in Eraserhead, a film that like 16 people had seen at this point. Um, like, it's it's so great. And the, and the quote I saw about it was just, well, it didn't work out. <laughs> and I'm sure that was the studio being like, well, yeah, we can get you John hurt so uh no offense to your friend but well and and didn't jack nance because of the how long it took to make a racer head to get the money together i mean jack nance walked around with that haircut for like two three years (laughs) and now and now you're gonna get you okay we've wrapped the racer head that's out good for you jack and now we're gonna layer you up with all this makeup and make this. Up. I mean, poor Jack Nance for crying out loud. I'm glad he didn't get the part. That's right. And and I now invite us and our three remaining listeners to uh, to contemplate the idea of the bronchial breathing and wheezing of the Elephant Man just uh, just working its uh, just Merrick working his way through the line. There was a fish in the percolator. <laughs> Or, or in the other direction, I'm thinking of Jack Nance as Pete Martell in the season two opener when he takes the the oxygen thing out of his nose and and smells the hospital food they brought him. It was like, oh, ooh, and then you know puts it back in his nose. I, that you talk about the bronchial wheezing. That's that's what I'm visualizing with Jack Nance in this role, and it it Perfect. just doesn't work. Well, <laughs> yeah. it, the studio thought it was going to be tough to sell John Hurt on the movie, and apparently flew him out and they thought they were going to have to sort of spin it on how this was a, was going to be a great role for him. And he told, I guess he told one of the casting directors that he wasn't allowed to repeat this to his agent, but he would have done the movie for free. He, he loved it so much. I mean, I, it must have been a really powerful script uh, that they were able to generate that much interest. And, and David Lynch did was involved with adding to it. He gets a writing credit for it. Uh, but it, yeah, I mean, they, they, Anthony Hopkins, who, I mean, his, I, I don't know that this isn't Anthony Hopkins' greatest role. He sure is great. It's such a different kind of performance than we got used to right. from him later in his career when he became sort of subsumed by his tics like Pacino or something, right? Right. Is this before or after the, yeah, the, the line in winter, Kyle? Oh, this, yeah, this would have been well after because uh, Line in Winter was 1968, oh, yeah, yeah. but he was he was very young at that yeah, point. Oh, yeah. So this yeah. is this is um, like perfect like young middle age Anthony Hopkins. Uh, it's right, it's really right. good. 
he's so wide-eyed. He acts so yeah. much through the eyes and just the uh-huh. way that he's like curious and compassionate and at the same time you can read him as complicit throughout a lot of this. It's it's really nice and it's it's hard stuff to pull off as an actor. He doesn't yeah. get, you know, the sort of um I am not an animal speeches either. He just he has to play it straight and he has to do so much and it's great. Yeah, and particularly when he first sees Merrick and you're, you know, you're looking at him and it's just I mean, he does very little facial movement. It's just his mouth gapped open and his eyes wide and you know, one little tear and it's just I mean, it's it's just it's just beautiful and moving and he doesn't say anything and he does very little movement. It's just it's it's phenomenal how he can pull that off. Well, but yeah. you, you, the thing about that and that's I agree with all that. But what's even more interesting is when you put on top of it, there's a period element to it because when he first gets there, John's taking a shower and he kind of like peeks at him taking a shower. And then when he realizes that Bites is coming, you know, he steps back and, you know, stands up straight with his, you know, stiff upper lip like an English gentleman right right after having, you know, peeked at him in the shower. Yeah. And Bites has that moment in their first interaction where – I believe he implies to Treves that, look, if what you want to do is to fuck a historical curiosity, if you want to fuck a freak, I'm here for you, right? Yeah. He says, like, there are some right. some ways to make special arrangements or something, right? Right, um, right. And, you know, the way that Hopkins has to register, like, horror and disgust at this idea, while at the same time, you know, reminding us that, like, what he's doing is gawking also. Like, this is, it's a it's a triple Lutz every time or whatever. It's It's tough. Right. Well, and, and it brings up the point that, uh, and this is probably the first scene when, when Merrick is there with Bites, the first time that people start talking about understanding. Whenever someone uses the word understanding in this movie, they're almost always getting it wrong. Hmm. I don't know that there's a single time that the word understanding is used by someone who actually understands. Hmm. That's neat. Yeah, it was, and that's the word that's super loaded the first time Bites uses it to Treves. We understand each other. Right, uh, we're, exactly. We're the same, right? And and that's kind of his position. It's the position of Sonny Jim. This, well, we're not so different, you and me. You just get to show off your freak in a different context than I get to. Yeah. I bring people down from the pub. You parade him in front of high society and medical societies and what right. have you. Um, yeah, you just have so, a better class of voyeur. right. Right. But the the line drawing and the like um uh word choice is super fascinating to me too. Right. We in that same interaction between Bites and Treves, it's right after the cops have been called in and they've decided to shut down this exhibit because it quote degrades everyone who sees it, right? And what the cop says at one point, there's nothing wrong with freaks. What you've got here is a monster, which is like fascinating to me. You know, that like there was, we're in this point in history where we, we have this accepted idea of being able to come and gawk at freaks, but that's changing rapidly. And we draw the line somewhere. We draw the line at something, someone human who appears to be a monster because he's so horrifying. Like that takes some kind of moral arithmetic that I can't do from 2018, you know? Right. But, but, I mean, you do think about, I mean, when the Puritans outlawed bear baiting, it wasn't because it gave pain to the bear. It was because it gave pleasure to the crowd. It was the idea of the moral decay 
of someone enjoying something that it was wrong for them to enjoy, and their enjoyment of it was going to debase them and bring them down and ultimately bring everyone down. And that's that's the kind of line drawing that they're doing. They may be doing it horribly, but but there is an effort there to say, okay, if you just wanna if you want to look at little people and and make fun of the fact that they're shorter than average adults, okay, we can tolerate that. But this this is horrendous. Well, that's a great point and a, and a great way of illustrating it, Kyle. Um, I, I'm not even suggesting that they're doing it horribly. I'm just suggesting they're doing it in a way that is fundamentally not comprehensible to me from my church sure. now, from the, from the society that I grew up in, you know. Well, and it's it's interesting looking at it today because, it, particularly since you and I both would have seen it at a much younger age, you know, right? Some of these are thoughts that that no one, including David Lynch or even the most advanced progressive thinkers of 1980, were having. Um, you know, could could not have foreseen the the extent to which, um, frankly, we as a people are more accepting of all kinds of varieties uh, in a way that that really wasn't accepted in mainstream society in 1980. Never mind in 1890. Right. Well, and there's a way in which the film landed amongst a certain kind of voyeur that I suspect was not what Lynch or anybody else intended. So, uh, in the prep for this, I mentioned that this is Carl Pilkington's favorite movie, and Pilkington is a radio producer and like a sidekick and figure of fun for Ricky Gervais. But the his whole deal is that he is fascinated by freaks here here in the 21st century. He loves anything uh, about circus sideshows and people that are oddities and whatever, and I think that he takes a very kind of prurient interest in all of this. And so, he says this is his favorite movie in a way that I think I I I don't think of the movie right I think his reaction right. to the film is quite different from mine um, right and it's not necessarily to say that I'm a better or more evolved person it's just that I think he's getting something prurient out of it that that Lynch was aiming not to do but but it is interesting though that you have a much you know for for an extended period of time in over Lynch's career, that level of, of accusation of, of him having that sort of Harry Cruz-like fascination with grotesquery, I mean, of, of just putting, you know, even as late as The Return, where you have uh, Mr. C arriving at Beulah's, and they're, you know, they're going, and Daria and, and Ray are saying goodbye to everybody, and there's just that guy sitting there in the wheelchair who has some obvious uh, issues, and He's ne- we're never told who he is. He doesn't have any lines. We don't know what he's doing there. But there is that focus on having him there. And and Lynch has been accused, uh, perhaps not without foundation, of of having that kind of that very same fascination you're describing. And yet here in this movie, again, at the very beginning of his career, he's he, we've got this compassionate treatment of of these people. You've got an open condemnation of this sort of exhibitionist exploitation and it's just it's really odd to me how so many of the aspects of this movie would make perfect sense if David Lynch had made this movie in 2015 you know this cast Paramount being willing to turn over this movie to him him being able to answer his critics in sort of the get your hearts right or die way but the idea that this occurred in 1980 knowing everything that came after that it just it fits David Lynch. It just doesn't fit the moment in time where it occurred. Yeah, and uh, Jer, I promise I'll let you talk again in just a second. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, 
<laughs> it's it's worth wondering, I think, especially for purposes of our endeavor on this podcast, to what extent Treves is like a proto Dale Cooper. The because you sort of wonder in the same ways how much he is. Um, helping, how much he is uh-huh. remedying some kind of an evil in the world or determined to improve society, and how much he's wallowing, how much he's a yeah. spectator, a voyeur, a participant in something where, you know, he thinks that this underworld or this contact with evil gives him a jolt in some way, and being a person who's better than it gives him a jolt in some way, but maybe ultimately those things overtake him more than the actual job. You know, and and I had not thought about that, and I think that's a fabulous point, but you know, when you think of of this as sort of a proto-Dale Cooper, obviously Jeffrey Beaumont is even more that, and obviously it's clearer because it's Scott McLaughlin, but you know, Treves at least has the moment when he's faced with that accusation where he's sitting there talking to his wife and and saying, am I no better than than Bites? Am I just putting him on display? I mean, he he takes that to heart. He really gives consideration and and gets some absolution from Merrick uh, later on. And and even then, I don't know that he's fully convinced that, that it isn't true. And, you know, Beaumont is aware of that because he's forced to to confront it by Frank Booth um, but but he doesn't I think ever come right out and say it directly I mean he you know he asks uh, Laura Dern uh, why are there bad people in the world but I, I don't know that he ever gets to the point of Treves of saying am I one of those bad people and and Dale Cooper Original recipe Dale Cooper appears to be even more oblivious to it, and and obviously the return Dale Cooper still more so. So I mean we we're getting it's almost like 1980 is is full heroin woke David Lynch, and his heroes get more and more ambiguous and less and less willing to face that ambiguity as as time goes on. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to talk about that spectrum when we get to Blue Velvet. Okay, I, I, yeah, I, I, I have to interject with a reference to of something of questionable canonicity. Uh, of course, my life, my tapes. My only quibble with what you just said is I think that there is more self doubt and introspection in the Cooper as displayed in the autobiography than the Cooper we saw either in the original series or the Return. But I agree, I, all all of that fits. Uh, Cooper does not, at least when he's on the pick on the screen, have the degree of sort of self uh, awareness that uh, we see from Treves in in this movie. Another point that I was going to make at the end, but I'm just going to go and make it now, is that I saw Bites in this movie as a kind of proto Bob, uh, because he is completely obsessed uh, with the notion of totally possessing some vulnerable, highly sensitive, uh, intelligent. Uh, good person and, you know, feeds upon that person's Garmin Bosia in a, in a transactional way. Uh, and that if his victim, his target, the person whom he wants to possess, uh, won't accept, then he'll discard and destroy, uh, that person, uh, if they're unwilling to accept possession. And then Kyle, and when I made that point in the outline, you, you made the, the better point that Bites also casts Merrick out from what's effectively a train car in the same way Bob casts Laura out of the train car. Mm. Yeah. But, but we also, that becomes really even more interesting in light of, of what Ken said earlier about the real Merrick having, you know, the, the movie portrays him as a little bit more uh, an innocent victim, whereas in reality, he was more complicit in it. And, and that's very much what we have with 
Laura that, you know, she she knew what she was doing. She she made some choices here. She was not the innocent victim that maybe we thought she was when Dale Cooper first drives into Twin Peaks on the morning of February 24th. We find out uh, as we go along, she she made a decision. And in Fire Walk With Me, very clearly, she made the decision to, to go into that train car and had the opportunity to save herself and chose not to do it. So it, it becomes even more interesting in light of uh, of Ken's revelation, which I think ties in almost with the Laura revelation of of uh, after the series of what she really intended and what she was really doing. Yeah, I think there's an element too of Mike to the Bites character, uh, Philip Gerard, Mike, that he is a collector of Garmin Bosia like Bob, but he kind of thinks he's helping. I don't think that Bob ever thinks that anything he's doing is less than nefarious, but we talked at the very end of our discussion of The Return about where Mike fits on that spectrum and whether he really is sort of a good guy equivalent to Bob or whether he's, you know, more like the guy that was a fellow hunter of Garmin Bosia with him. And Bites thinks that well, all these people are doing the same to Merrick as he's doing, but at least he's making some money. Um, now, it doesn't look like he's sharing any of that money with Merrick, and of course he treats him terribly, but in the way that I'm sure many like abusive husbands think that they're being loving, or abusive fathers think that they're being loving, I think he thinks he's doing the right thing. Yeah, maybe. Well, he at least feels like he's more honest about it. Mm-hmm. And Sonny Jim the same way that, you know, I, I don't know that they really think of themselves as terribly moral, but they recognize, you know, hey, we're, you know, we're all bad people. I mean, it's almost, it's almost Boyd Crowder like, uh, you know, that it, Boyd has no illusions that he's a good guy, but he knows that, uh, uh, he knows that Harlan's going to be run by bad guys and he'll do a better job of it than the rest of them would. Right. Right. I'm not sure who I think is more vile or evil between Bites and Sonny Jim. It's it's hard hard to yeah. say because Bites we get to, we see doing more horrible things, but we also see him, you know, at least purporting to care about Merrick like a charge, whereas Sonny Jim sees him only as a profit opportunity. No, I I I think I can. I'm Sonny Jim's awful and 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 truly bad. But remember, Sonny Jim sits him up from the bed and you know in a, in a way does kind of take care of him in a way that Merrick would have done but but merely as a you know slave owner kind of you know taking care of your human chattel way uh and and he's and 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 uh, gosh sonny jim is an awful piece of shit let me just say that but he doesn't beat Merrick he he he's he's doing terrible no, but things. I, he's, yeah, but he lets people pour booze well, on. Well, I know that's, hey, that's, and, that's and, not cool. And he <laughs> to me cool. it's the him him taking the mirror and holding it up to Merrick's face that that is and certainly in terms of Merrick's reaction, you know, he takes the beating and just sort of accepts it as as part of the cost of doing business, but you know, the the actual the the outcry of of pain comes from the the mirror i mean that's just being mean it's not it's not getting it doing anything to to boost his profit by doing that you know putting him up on display okay people are paying money to see him but to go hey let me let me show you this mean thing i'm going to do to him i mean that's just cruel for the sake of being cruel at least bites is motivated by the desire to to make the profit you know he he's he's not just being mean for the hell of it yeah, I mean, they both treat him as a commodity, it's true, right? I think that the sure. the ways in which Bites seems to 
care a little bit about him as a charge are probably just related to not wanting his asset to depreciate too much. Um, and he does a shitty job of it. By the time they're in France, you know, Merrick is super weak and can't even stand. And like, that's that's Bites' fault. And uh, and everyone's. All of our fault. Society's I, fault. But, I, I blame um, the crown. Yeah. I blame Queen Victoria. Uh, th- they should have found room in the royal coffers to pay for a decent security detail at this hospital. I mean, this hospital has the shittiest security of any hospital right. ever. Right. It's really bad. Yeah. Uh, it's, you shouldn't be able to like just uh, wander into a ho- 40 people wander into a hospital up until like because his, his, it seemed like his room. I mean, it was unclear where his room was, but it wasn't like accessible from the street. You had to go through. Oh, no, he's, through he's the, in the isolation ward. I mean, you, well, you, he's he, set it, apart he did, from he other did people. get moved. They, the, Sonny Jim makes a reference to his room being moved someplace closer to the pub, apparently. But uh, he's yeah, they 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 can't. They've got to go into the building somehow. And you know, how do you how do you secret forty people into a hospital in the middle of the night? Apparently, quite easily. <laughs> yeah. yeah, entirely too easily. I, I mean, back to your queen point. Uh, I, I think that fundamentally monarchies are always bad. Uh, but should we should we talk about the ways in which this film sort of indicts the um, Western capitalism of Victorian England? Because I have a couple of thoughts about that. Sure. Yeah. We get, run run with it, Ken. Well, I, I just the, the notion that all of this is uh, a for-profit enterprise to some extent, uh, which I know we, we deal with with healthcare in this country all of the time, but that there is a critique of that in this movie. So, from the this hospital doesn't accept incurables uh, to um, a mother's head who remarks that kindness and patience are antithetical to, quote, running a hospital, right? Treve says to her, you, you didn't show him much kindness and patience. And she says, well, there's no time for kindness and patience when you're running a hospital to um, the need for the effing queen to step in to pay for his lodging. That, like, there's there's no money in it for us to keep him here. We need to turn that room in order to make a profit uh, right up until the crown steps in and says, well, I need, to, I need to pay for this. And I think that, you know, his story, Merrick's story, was one that came to prominence because it was a way for people to have a look at the way the society of the time was failing people of all stripes from the underclasses to um, people who were born with deformities and things like that. And I think there were quite a lot of stories of that nature, but it's amazing to think that like, well, you built this city on the backs of people that you don't even notice or think about. The Jack the Ripper thing is the same thing, right? That, that was happening at the same time. The Ripper murders started two years before Merrick died and people really became enamored of that story, not just for the usual salacious reasons, I think, but because it gave them a glimpse into what was happening in this Whitechapel neighborhood, where there were prostitutes and drugs and um, horrible brawls and street fights and things. Um, And the way London was constructed at the time, it was possible for people to ignore all of that. Um, So, you know, I think all of that is part of the experience of watching this movie to me now and, and very interesting. Well, we also have a, a very different uh, a 
medical, uh, just the, the principles of medicine were very different. I mean, at that point, mm-hmm. we were very limited in our ability to fix anything. I mean, it was largely uh, at that point still maintaining, you know, physical comfort as best as possible uh, until until nature either cured or killed the patient. You know, there was very little they could do to fix things. And, and with someone like Merrick, um, who wasn't incurable, I mean, there was nothing, there was literally nothing they could do to improve his condition. I mean, now you would be able to do, it would probably be a series of surgeries, but, you know, you would at least be able to do some form of, of uh, plastic surgery, some form of uh, corrective measures, you know, things to straighten out the spine, maybe restore some use in, in the right arm and things like that. Um, but in that day, that simply wasn't a possibility. I mean, you see, you know, the, the injured man receiving surgery after the industrial accident uh, and Anthony Hopkins. Yeah there with him and just how how really brutal uh it was in in those days and how how limited you were in your ability to 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 fix anything so i mean to some extent the idea of of we don't take incurables is you know we we're taking in people we have some chance of being able to help as opposed to people who are just taking up bed space that might go to somebody that could actually get better so i I don't know that it's an utter lack of compassion and an utter insistence upon profitability as much as it is, look, there's only so many people we can help. Let's help the ones we have a chance of of making better. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be that and be very relatable from the perspective of those people. I think they're making rational choices from the position their society has put them in. I also think it can be something that that looks sort of damning about the society as a whole from my perspective. But um, but just a uh, biographical note, I, I totally agree with you, Kyle. They, they would do a whole bunch of different things uh, with him now. What was amazing from his actual biography is his the swelling around his brain kept growing and growing after some of the other stuff um, stopped changing to the point where it endangered him and he nearly died when he was in the workhouse. And the workhouse brought in a surgeon that was able to relieve the pressure on his brain and keep him from dying, um, which is like amazing to me that they, <laughs> that, that, that that succeeded and that he would have to put himself in that person's care. I mean, you, you wouldn't have any choice, of course, but that I, I read that and I was like, stunned, you know. Um, But what a heartbreaking moment we get in the film when he finally says to Treves, I have a question I've been wanting to ask you for a very long time. Can you cure me? And Treves says no. And he says, no, I thought not. Like, that was was one of the points where I really, that was tough. That was that was heartbreaking. Yeah, I don't really know enough about the economics of 19th century medicine in England. I, I have a general conception that most hospitals were run by charitable organizations but and and there is a distinction between um you know some sort of state asylum which is where initially the supreme being thinks that Merrick ought to go um some sort of right. where he would end up being some kind of ward of the state and you know uh, Treves immediately says that you know he would there, there's there should have no chance of surviving in a place like that and we can only imagine how how awful a victorian area era sanitarium for extremely sick or deformed people would be like. Uh, and this hospital isn't that obviously. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, and I, and they're the backdrop of the industrial revolution uh, and, you know, the, the horrors of industrial England in particular are kind of throughout the whole movie. Uh, you, a lot of, you know, fire and churning and 
smoke and uh it, we see in other lynch movies to some extent and it's you know and we mentioned that before the industrial noise in the beginning uh, you know that it's a david lynch movie when you hear a kerchunk chunk kerchunk chunk and then right and then like right and then like kissing and that, that, that's you know we see that in, in on, on you know may, i may have too much dune in my head permanently uh <laughs> but we certainly see that in in lots of his other movies too, especially Twin Peaks and Inland Empire, which I which I did see well, recently. And even the even the huge agricultural machines in Straight Story, yeah, yeah, right? definitely. Like even even yeah, the G rated right, thing right. is not not immune from it. But the quote in the right. beginning of Elephant Man is uh, abominable things these machines you can't even reason with them, right? Yeah, and and that's what I had in my head all the way through, and all those very Lynchian scenes. We're, that seems like something Lynch might have added, right? And then Treves is like it's to, yeah. to to some intern or whatever, like you're going to be seeing a lot more of these type accidents. And I, and I was wondering if he was talking about in his career as a doctor or because of the upswing of industrialization. Right. Yeah. And I definitely think it's it's certainly the first may be in there, but it's certainly uh, implicit in the second. I mean, you've, and you've really got that shot through the whole movie, as you say. I mean, you've got this idea of, you know, the expendable human cog in the industrial machine. You got a lot of bellows. You got a lot of firemen. I there's probably more flames in this movie than than anything prior to Wild at Heart. I mean, there's a lot of fire in this movie. Uh, you know, a lot of industrial noises, you know, and you see him walking through the streets. You know, you have on the one hand, you know, horses and dogs and a guy carrying meat on a spit, but then you've got all the mechanical devices, the fire, the steam, the hand cranks, all the all the clattering noise, drowning out dialogue. Uh, so there's, a, there's, you know, this juxtaposition of the fundamental natural animal man versus the industrial man who's just you know just a a piece uh of meat that's that's there in the factory and if something happens to him there's another one to plug in in his place and it's it's interesting that you have Merrick cast in the role of this animal creature and you know and ultimately obviously says it explicitly I'm not an animal I'm a human being and and in fact he's the most human character in this movie. You know, the rest of them are all soiled in some way internally. You know, with him, he's he's blemished on the outside, but he's pure of spirit internally. Uh, it's everyone else who's who's uh, who's debasing themselves, and and he's the one who's actually you know they call him an animal, they think of him as an animal, they call him the Elephant Man, but he's the most human character in the movie, and he's the he's the one who's actually trying to be a person even even to the extent that he's putting himself on display he's doing what he can to be who he is and everybody else is just you know somebody else in the in in the row of of machines yeah well and there's always something in the street scenes that's either dripping or expelling steam or you know um there's some open flame in some extremely dangerous place right those gas lamps in the hospital I had to keep reminding myself yeah. that they don't have yeah. oxygen. But I was like, hey, even without the oxygen that you would see in a modern hospital environment, like, dude, an open flame. Like, what if the flame goes out? There's going to be gas everywhere, and there's a spark, and the whole thing blows right. up. I couldn't stop thinking about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's, you know, obviously, it's a pre-OSHA, pre-industrial safety age. Yeah. We we think about um, large companies lobbying to continue polluting or lobbying to um 
quote unquote disprove climate change or whatever as a singularly contemporary phenomenon. But um, Adrian did some reading, I think, about this period in England recently, and she was telling me about how there were people dying of smoke inhalation, just like super direct pollutants into the air going into people's lungs and them dying. And the companies that had these factories smack in the middle of London were commissioning people to write scientific papers about how actually it's much better for you to inhale soot. Right. <laughs> it's good right, for your health right, right, to right. do this thing, right? I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same venal, greedy humanity forevermore. Um, well, it's but almost, boy, it's almost it literally what you see with tobacco companies. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's what right. you just that's described right. is exactly the research of, of, of that you get out of – no, we're, we, we haven't been able to tie cigarettes to cancer. Um, it's toasted. You know, as – as if, as if the idea of okay, you've you've rolled leaves up in paper and set them on fire and inhaled them directly into your lungs, that can't possibly be good for you, right? When it's not, but it's not just it's not just cigarettes. It's it's PCBs. It's D D E T. It's uh, it, right. it's, it, it's everywhere in the industrial world, and you know it, it, the the industrial accident. You know the reason why eventually in the United States all the states instituted workers' compensation. Uh, systems is because uh, these workers would get these horrible industrial injuries and they'd go up in front of a judge and the judges would just throw all their cases out saying that, you know, that they had contributory negligence barred their claims or, or that they had assumed the risk of getting their arm chopped off by a, by industrial machine by taking the job. And because these, these judges who were, uh, you know, essentially protecting, protecting their class interests kept coming out with these decisions. The, the legislatures had to in, institute a no, a new no liability regime where people would just get paid out of a, a, a pool of workers' compensation insurance without, you know, proving that it wasn't their fault that their arm was chopped off by a thresher or whatever. And I think, though, we have to stop and start a new recording because we've got an hour. A change for once in my life. It's gonna feel real good. Gonna make a difference. Gonna make it right. As I turn up the collar on my favorite winter coat, this wind is blowing my mind. I see the kids in the street. But not enough to eat Who am I to be blind Pretending not to see them need A summer's disregard A broken bottle top And a one-man soul They follow each other on the wind You know Cause they got nowhere to go That's why no one yet to know Read 